This special episode of the Blue Hawaii Podcast is brought to you by Homebrew in Paradise. Homebrew in Paradise is your one-stop shop for all your beer, wine, cider, and fermented food making needs. Mention the Blue Hawaii Podcast at checkout and get 10% off all starter kits and recipes. That's Homebrew in Paradise, 740 Mo'ova'a Street in Kalihikai. Welcome to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. Josh Michaels actually couldn't be here today. Uh, he's not feeling too well. We've got a very special episode for you regardless. I mean, we interviewed the frickin' governor, y'all. This is very, very cool for us, and more on that in a minute. Uh, but we wanted to give you just a taste of what's going on in the world today. Uh, Mark Janis, the lead plaintiff in the Janis case, which essentially disassembled public sector unions, has retired. Imagine that. Mr. Janis took a highly paid job as a pundit at a right-leaning think tank, called the Illinois Party Institute, which may or may not have sponsored the entire litigation. He threw himself a little retirement party. Uh, four people attended. Meanwhile, the union threw itself a Mark Janus is finally retiring, thank God, party. 76 people attended. Oh, by the way, uh, the hot-button issue in the case was an issue of speech. It was compulsory dues-paying uh, to the union for representation. The total amount of money that Mr. Janus was fighting over, about $45 a month. Seems like maybe it didn't have a whole lot to do with speech after all. Also, Nate Hicks and Living Wage Hawaii put out their voter guides. This is a candidate-by-candidate guide that goes through uh, everybody running for office in Hawaii and lets you know whether they are in favor of you, your family, and your friends being paid a living wage. If you want to find it, follow them on Facebook, on Twitter, or go to livingwagehawaii.org. Next, Brian Feste was kicked out of the state GOP. Feste, a Republican running for a seat in Hilo, told the Tribune Herald that he wants, quote, an all-white nation and shared campaign material that states he is, quote, pro-white and uses derogatory language for Jewish and black Americans. Maybe he picked the wrong state. I guess the Hawaii Proud Boys are going to have to find a new candidate support. Also, Hawaii GOP, I mean, good job, I guess. Now you're one for two in kicking out the right politician. Next, we received a letter to the editor of sorts. Uh, Miss Sarah Elizabeth Dill, who is a partner at Anthem Global in Washington, D.C., a legal and consulting firm focusing on human rights, international law, and human affairs, sent us a little piece that we wanted to read. It's a bit of an op-ed. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing. We'll share it later if you guys are interested. Um, but it's about Congressional District 2 candidate Sherry Campagna. She says, It has often said that in the darkest times, we look for the helpers. We look to those who refuse to be silent. Those are the heroes, the ones upon whose shoulders a nation should be built and achieve its full potential. Sherry has shown time and again that she is willing to put the burdens and needs of the people of Hawaii and of the world on her shoulders and to find solutions. She not only deserves your vote in the primary, our nation needs you to vote for her. What a ringing endorsement of a friend of the show, an alum of the show, our good friend, Sherry Campagna. Next, uh, an article came across my news bubble, uh, this one from Vice, which I have mixed feelings about. The headline is simply, Millennials are sick of old politicians, but too poor to replace them. This is a very depressing thought, and it is largely true. It sounds like the global economy, which has essentially screwed us at every step of our entire adult lives is doing one more thing to disenfranchise us from the electoral process. However, one thing that the article makes abundantly clear that we are in control of is our voter rate. The article says that 
just 28%, barely one in four millennials are, quote, absolutely certain that they're going to vote in the upcoming midterms. This is in an election where Beto O'Rourke is running against uh, incumbent senator and professional slug Ted Cruz, uh, where we have crazy Tea Partier Rick Scott running to unseat a, a Democratic senator in Florida, where we have a rash of young candidates running all over the entire country, including Miss Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is sort of leading the way on this. But even in Hawaii, we have more millennials running for office than we've ever had. If you want the problems to be fixed, you have to do something. You have to vote. You have to get out there and make your voice heard. Otherwise, we have no means of holding people accountable for making laws that disproportionately affect young people. We have no means of putting people in power who we want to see. We have no means of fighting back. The first step in resistance is to use whatever power you've got to make whatever change you can. Do not let the Republicans, do not let the Russians, do not let the environment of our national politics discourage you from voting. Get out there and vote. Vote for your freaking lives. That said, if you're interested in voting, interested in showing your support for the vote, some good friends of ours, Mr. Woe Carone and Mr. Nate Hicks, have co-organized an event called People to the Polls. People to the Polls will be happening this Saturday at Ala Moana Beach Park. That's this Saturday, August 4th, starting at 10 a.m., Ala Moana Beach Park. There will be a march to the state capitol. Marching is optional. I know some of you don't like to march. Uh, get out there and just show your support. There's strength in numbers. The more people that we show are interested in an issue, the more that issue will get airtime, the more it will be talked about. Voting is important. Young people, we're 30% of Hawaii's electorate. If we vote as a block, we are a force to be reckoned with. Let's put people who believe what we believe, who advocate for what we advocate for, who will represent us accountably in positions of power. Now, on to our interview with Governor Ige. Governor Ige sat down with us about a week and a half ago at his office in Kalihi and was incredibly, incredibly gracious. He sat there and let us bombard him with question after question after question for an hour. He didn't shy away from a single issue, not even the nuclear false alarm. He provided outright answers to every single question. I've been very, very impressed with both him and his opponent, Congresswoman Hanabusa, for being so willing to give answers on every single question we ask, even if they aren't answers that I agree with. Mr. Ige has shown himself to be an incredibly intelligent man, a person of considerable integrity, and somebody who I think you're really going to like hearing from, even if you don't agree with all of his policy positions. Big thanks to his communications team for making it happen. Um, we really appreciate all of this, and big thanks to you for listening. If you like this interview, please like it, tag it, share it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, rate us on iTunes. Those things, they really, really help. Anyway, please enjoy our interview with uh, the ineffable Governor Ige. We often hear Hawaii meaning white person in a negative connotation, but is a perfectly good word. It means foreign introduced or foreign origin or foreign introduction. So in Hawaiian, anyone or anything that is not native to Hawaii is Haole. I'm Leilani Poli Ahu, Ahui Ho. Haole. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. Tonight, we're coming to you from Kalihi. We are honored to be talking to the state's big boss, the chief executive, the eighth governor of the great state of Hawaii, Governor David Ige. Before his election in 2014, he represented Aiea and Pearl City in the Hawaii legislature since 1985, and he's running for re-election in the Democratic primary on August 11th. Governor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Aloha. I'm glad to be here. Now, for our listeners who may not know you as well, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your story? Well, I, uh, I did serve in the legislature for t- 29 years, uh, nine years in the House and then 20 years in uh, the Senate. But uh, first and foremost, I'm an electrical engineer. I uh, worked at uh, GTE when it was GTE, Hawaiian Telephone, uh, for about 18 years. You know, for all the time that I served in, uh, in public service in the state legislature, I always felt uh, that I wanted to have a real career and a real job. And so I, I worked as an engineer at Hawaiian Telephone. Uh, I would say I'm sort of the accidental um, public servant because... But the I, good kind. We have another one in the presidency right now. <laughs> right. Well, that's a, that's another story altogether. You know, it's not something that I had uh, planned to do. And uh, in fact, um, as you may know, I was appointed uh, to the House of Representatives to fill a vacancy. And I, I really didn't seek it out. It kind of sought me out. But at that point in time, I was uh, working at Hawaiian Telephone. I uh, had been promoted three times in four years. And I was very focused on becoming uh, the very first local president of uh, Hawaiian Telephone. At that point in time, all of the presidents were uh, from the mainland, kind of passing through. Uh, And then, you know, I got a call, and um, next thing you knew, I was meeting with the Democratic Party chair and and the governor, uh, and then I was appointed to fill a vacancy in the House. Wow. In literally uh, 10 hours. So... It uh, definitely changed my life, but um, it, it has been a terrific opportunity to not only uh, serve my state as an engineer um, at the phone company, but also allowed me to um, do public service. I, th- I think, Governor, I feel like you're being a little humble because I was told that you were accepted into MIT. Is that correct? I was accepted to MIT, and you and you went to the uh, what we call the Harvard, the MIT of the Pacific, the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Is that right? Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you Go know, Bose. Well, I I was very active in uh, in high school and doing a lot of different things. Oh, which I, high school? Uh, Pearl City High School. Go I'm Chargers. A proud, yes, absolutely. I'm a proud graduate of um, Pearl City High School. Uh, we were actually the first class to finish uh, four years at the school. No so way, it was brand cool. new. Yeah, it was brand new when I was a student there. Uh, it was a terrific uh, education and opportunity. And I had applied to many schools across the country at that point in time. I wasn't dead set for engineering, but definitely, um, you know, I loved math and science and involved with a lot of different things. So I tended to focus on um, on technical schools. Uh, my two oldest brothers um, attended. My oldest brother, Richard, went to Purdue University. Boilermaker. And, yeah, and, and uh, majored in uh, engineering. And my uh, second oldest brother, um, Steve, uh, went to Illinois Institute of Technology in double E. I don't know and what so, their mascot is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if they have one, actually. Uh, but... Uh, you know, and so I did apply to a number of schools, but um, yeah, I did get accepted to MIT. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, I have, I'm five of six brothers uh, in my family. Uh, I really felt that um, if I went away, I, you know, I didn't want to have my f- family have to sacrifice for the cost, uh, for one. And secondly, you know, if I decided to go away, it would ensure that my younger brother, who was a year younger than me, wouldn't have options. He, de- he definitely would not have that option. And, you know, uh, University of Hawaii has a, had a great engineering school. They just opened a brand new building at that point in time. Um, Holmes Hall was uh, like two years uh, old and, you know, a lot of new labs and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so I decided to go to University of Hawaii. And also, one last thing, and this is fighting words, uh, and I'm probably going to get some blowback from this, but electrical engineers are just the smartest of all the engineers. I married one, so (laughs) I know that for a fact. (laughs) So this actually leads us nicely into our first listener question. Uh, Where did your kids go to school, and how are you going to make sure they can come home and make a life in Hawaii? You know, certainly I am committed, and like so many uh, who call Hawaii home, obviously want my... Uh, children to have the opportunity to find a challenging career and have the opportunity to call Hawaii home. Um, All of my kids, Lauren is my oldest daughter, Amy, my middle daughter, and Matthew um, attended Pearl Ridge Elementary. You know, they uh, had a terrific education there. Uh, Lauren um, started at Iolani in the seventh grade. Uh, and finished there. Uh, Amy uh, went from Moana, um, from Pearl Ridge Elementary to Moana Loa Middle School, um, where she learned to play the viola. Very and cool. Then, yeah, and then she went uh, to Apunahu from ninth grade. Uh, and my youngest son, Matthew, was at Pearl Ridge through sixth grade and then started at Apunahu in uh, seventh grade. Uh, so, you know, they went on to college. Uh, Lauren is an attorney. Um, she works for Wilmer Hill in Washington, D.C. Okay. That's a great firm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. she uh, she graduated from Georgetown Law. Uh, my daughter, Amy, uh, went to University of Rochester in New York, mm-hmm. and she graduated uh, with a bachelor's of arts in biology, I believe, and then she finished her um, bachelor in nursing. She's a registered nurse. Uh, she's working in uh, Mount Vernon in the state of Washington. Uh, and my youngest son, Matthew, went on to Johns Hopkins, and he's a software engineer at Microsoft in Seattle. Not too so, sure. That's three for three. You so, crushed it, man. Yeah. Well, you so, crushed it. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, and so clearly the opportunity is to create opportunities for young yeah. people so that they can come home. So we talk about it all the time. You know, first thing they said, uh, Dad, is, well, how are we going to be able to afford to live in Hawaii? Like I hear so many times as I gone to coffee hours all around the state. Yeah. So housing has been a priority. You know, we've been focused and, and ensuring that we... I do believe it's a supply and demand challenge, and uh, we are focused on uh, uh, producing housing at all, all all pricing points. Obviously, we're focused on affordable as well. 
uh, and specifically affordable rentals. And we've had a number of housing studies that really talk about the fact that there are not a whole lot of rentals in our market for a market of this size. Uh, and clearly, uh, we can make state lands available for rentals, and that would keep them affordable forever. So that's definitely a part of our housing program. Uh, okay, so let's talk about uh, this poll that just came out in the Star Advertiser. Um, you know, it's uh, with all the all the caveats about you know a state election, a primary election, local newspaper, and we don't know. It's, but uh, you started out uh, original the first poll that came out in this race. You made up quite a bit of uh, deficit, and you're you're now shown up ahead, and you're shown to be uh, people appreciate your trustworthiness and your leadership. Uh, what are your thoughts on the poll, and how are you guys treating it going into the home stretch here before August 11th? I always say that the only poll that matters is uh, votes cast on election day, and I like to remind all of the campaign uh, people and uh, all of the the brain thrust of the campaign. Uh, but I, you know, celebrated with the volunteers and supporters when we were far behind and you know that we started far behind uh they were committed and and focused and refused to listen to the noise it's about being able to meet as many people and tell our story and expand the networks you know we are a grassroots focused campaign we were the last time and as you know we were outspent 10 to 1 uh, in the previous campaign and were able to win. And so uh, in spite of what uh, some of the early polls, I was very thankful and excited for the volunteers and supporters who really have been with me uh, from the beginning and refused to get distracted by the fact that the early polls showed us behind. Uh, and, you know, the, the recent polls really is a celebration of all of their work, their determination, and I think more importantly, their commitment to help me um, earn a second term. And I can tell you they're committed because when we walked into HQ here, you have a room full of people out there making calls at 4 o'clock on a Monday. That's that's determination. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, we're trying to reach out, make sure this election will be won by the candidate who can uh, ensure ensure that his voters show up and 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 vote and certainly we are uh, working very hard to make sure that the majority of our voters show up and and can be counted another bit of news uh, over the weekend several women supporting colleen hanabusa held a press conference and condemned one of your ads in which a female narrator says over an image of rep hanabusa criticism isn't leadership they're saying you're subjecting women to a double standard how do you respond I think the ad speaks for itself. I would encourage both of you to look at it and, and really see uh, what it says. You know, the ad really was talking about um, my accomplishments as um, protecting our watersheds and, you know, our sustainable Hawaii program. Uh, there was nothing that ever talked about or tried to um, influence what um, my opponent said or did. It really was focusing on on the fact that uh, we we just believe and I am asking the the public to to view criticism and I think the way that it should be that it isn't leadership and and encourage them to ask the next question. Speaking of next questions, this is a good segue. Uh, this listener question. Uh, this is about what 
everybody expects us to ask you about the uh, back in January, the missile alert, false alarm. Uh, Do you know your Twitter password? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> That's, that was one that came up. I we, was, so, surely it does. So we actually launched our first ever episode talking about you know what went down on that day, and this sort of comes full circle now. Uh, and a listener, uh, a close family member of mine, uh, she asked, uh, I want to vote for Governor Ige, but every time I think about voting, all I can think about is the 40 minutes I spent hiding in my closet. So what would you tell her? Well, I would say this, that, you know, the uh, false alert was a very, very terrifying event, I think, that uh, af- affected uh, everyone across the state. Uh, we were open and transparent in the assessment. You know, we've published a couple of reports of the incident. Uh, we did uh, contact all media to inform them that the missile alert was false within 15 minutes of uh, the false alert being issued. Uh, and I think more importantly, we have subsequently um, changed the process to assure that the event would never occur again. You know, we've changed leadership at Hawaii Emergency Management, and we've changed many processes to assure uh, that it wouldn't happen. You know, the 38 minutes was a result of the fact that we didn't anticipate issuing a false alert and there was no automatic process to cancel and so they had to construct and program uh, the recall of the message which uh, took longer because they weren't prepared for it. So uh, Subsequently, um, seeing everything uh, going on, you know, the Senate uh, having hearings and Pacific Command uh, putting the more of the, the the responsibility on the federal side, but also seeing, you know, speaking of the North Korean threat, everything that's happening uh, with President Trump's, you know, summit, quote unquote, and everything spilling out from that. What, what, what are your thoughts about Hawaii's situation today in the midst of all this? Well, I mean, I do think that um, we are the only state that had initiated preparations um, for an attack. Uh, many other states are not had not even asked the question. And uh, just to make certain that people understood, we uh, North Korea had, I think, 17 launches in the last 24 months leading up to this. And, and really, our concern was when you looked at uh, all of the information we had, um, that because of the investment that North Korea was making and the fact that they were really driving and testing, we believe that we needed to begin the process of uh, defining what our warning system would look like. Uh, obviously, we did not complete as a complete plan as we should have, but it certainly um, was a wake-up call that we needed a lot more work. You know, businesses realized that they didn't, even though we've had you know, community meeting after community meeting to talk about preparedness, to talk about um, what needed to happen for all the individuals to be prepared. Um, Many businesses and other organizations were not prepared and, you know, it definitely uh, caused many to think about what they should be doing in order to be prepared. Another question that's been on a lot of listeners' minds is concerning uh, the veto of Senate Bill 2407, which would have allowed Hawaii patients to use medical marijuana to treat opioid addiction. Um, That's a somewhat surprising decision, given that there were 191 drug-related deaths per year uh, on average in Hawaii and almost 500,000 active opioid prescriptions. 
Would you mind speaking a little bit more about why the veto happened? Certainly, uh, as you may know, um, marijuana is permitted for medicinal purposes and uh, it does require a prescription from a physician. Uh, Our uh, law provides for a process um, for medical professionals to identify and evaluate uh, data and studies about the effectiveness of marijuana for various ailments. Uh, and there is a process for them to make the determination that, uh, that it does help with, in this case, it would be uh, opioid addition, addiction. Uh, no application was made to the process, and I believe that it should go through, it should be a, a medical professional decision about whether, in fact, it is effective in helping with uh, opioid addiction. And, and if it is, then it would be uh, added to the list of um, treatments that is approved uh, for medicinal marijuana. So, so your position was not so much that it isn't a valid idea, it's that you just want the process to go right. to play out. I certainly believe that it should. the process should play out, mm-hmm. that the decision uh, to allow it uh, should be a medical one based on medical evidence presented to this board that would evaluate it and that uh, if it if there is if there's strong evidence that it is an effective um, treatment for opioid uh, addiction then it will be allowed on kind of piggybacking on that same question I'm sure you'll know where this is going uh, over the weekend Congresswoman Hanabusa um, made public again her uh, thought that, Uh, full recreational adult use marijuana legalization could potentially be a big economic boon for Hawaii uh, in a state that's as cash-strapped as we are and and sort of choked for economic growth uh, and living wage paying jobs why aren't we pursuing that more at a state level you know I do think uh, it's a couple things that uh, people need to understand Um, marijuana is illegal it's a class one Um, drug that is regulated by the federal government Uh, and you can't transport it inter-island, you can't transport it interstate. It is a a controlled substance Um, and people forget that Uh, and if you are doing something like taking it across lines, you know, you are committing a federal offense. Uh, I would remind everyone that this administration views uh, many of these issues very differently and can instantly uh, end uh, all of this recreational marijuana all across the country if they chose to uh, enforce the current laws. And so I just believe that having uh, a law that is inconsistent at the federal level and at the state level is confusing to the general population. Uh, And I have um, spoken with others in other states where people start to believe that it's legal uh, and then they drive across state lines and they get stopped by uh, a patrol officer and then they've committed a federal offense and is looking at um, uh, prison. Uh, in different kinds of situations. So I just believe that it needs to be uh, taken off the, um, the level one controlled substance list and, and, and made uh, appropriate 
at the federal level, and then we can talk about yeah. what states should be doing to manage or regulate its use. So if, if we enter into like a bizarre parallel universe and we wake up tomorrow and Jeff Sessions has said, you know, maybe I was wrong. And you'd you'd be you'd put it on the table. You'd be open to absolutely. Okay. I, I mean, you know, like I said, I I think it just gets confusing for our community where it is a federal offense. Uh, it can definitely mean prison time um, if you uh, carry too much of it, or if you take it inter-island or interstate or any of those uh, where the federal government has jurisdiction. Uh, it definitely can be a very serious crime, and then. Um, people would have to pay the price for it. Sure. Um, and that's the concern that I have. And I've, I've heard that in other states, you know, that people believe that it's legal and it's really not. It's against federal law. So the, the one last sort of pushback I, that I can anticipate from listeners, um, what would you say then to, you know, states like Oregon, Washington, California, uh, Nevada, that have gone full legalization and have suffered essentially no blowback. Like, why not legalize it for however long it'll be legalized for, and then if things you know go south with the federal at the federal level, just shut it down at the state level as well. Well, certainly, I think that that's uh, an option um, that you know people can choose to pursue. I would just say that you know Hawaii is uh, definitely different than Washington, Oregon, sure. California, and Nevada because we're 2500 miles away from anything mm-hmm. and clearly, you know, anyone carrying it anywhere even inter-island would be committing a federal offense and you know it definitely can be a serious um, crime mm-hmm. um, if it is um, prosecuted and and th- that's my biggest concern is that it's uh, definitely illegal at the federal level and to for residents to believe that it's sure. legal is just confusing for everyone well thanks for entertaining yep. that that was that was definitely one of our most asked uh yeah. things to ask about so well, we've got a, so tying into you know looking at other ways of economic growth we've got a, a a relevant listener question uh what are you doing or what will you do if re-elected uh to help make hawaii more diversified from the big three economic drivers of tourism military and government you know i do think and you can see the whole opportunity that's before us today you know, Hawaii, because of our geographic isolation being 2,500 miles away from anybody else, uh, often was um, a burden and really a roadblock for many industries to occur. Uh, with the pervasiveness of technology and all of the infrastructure that's in place all around the world, you know, even manufacturing, you know, before if you really wanted to be in manufacturing, let's say clothes, for example, you, know, it, you would have to make, you know, multi-million dollar investment in a facility that would allow you to do that. And in today's technology, you know, for relatively small investments of hundred thousands of dollars, you can set up a factory and almost economically be able to manufacture custom-fitted shirts uh, and sell it at a reasonable price. So, you know, you can see how virtually every industry has is being changed by technology. And what I like to tell people is that that means that um, in Hawaii, we can virtually 
take on any industry and really be successful. So I do think it's kind of a mindset change on a lot of different fronts. You know, I, when I talk about sustainable Hawaii, it's more than just energy and um, the environment. If you think about everything we do and, um, and think about what uh, we could do uh, to create jobs in our economy because of the opportunities that technology brings, you know, the virtually every industry becomes viable and you know with everything moving uh to the cloud and you know you don't really know where you're getting the services or where the website is hosted or uh, any of that and everything being done through your cell phone today uh you know it it's a different world and it really is about how can we build capacity uh, in our economy. So I do believe it begins with investing in our people. You know, public education becomes important. We have a new blueprint for education to take it to the 21st century. It's about empowering uh, schools. It's stopping the one-size-fits-all uh, of previous years and really focused on schools that serve the community. Early college, I think, is a terrific program. Every high school student should be able to take college, er, take and earn college credits. And you know, we're having uh, graduates with uh, associate of arts degrees before they uh, graduate high school. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and and so it's about investing. And yeah. what does that mean? You know, coding in our high schools, cybersecurity. Um, digital media, you Absolutely. know, we have the best yeah. digital media program in the in the world. I think uh, robotics has really taken off in virtually every school here, and I think that our robotics program uh, is the best in the world. So, you know, making those kinds of applied learning uh, opportunities for our children so that they can attain all the skills that uh, we want them to have without yeah. having to rack up massive student loan debt. Absolutely, yeah. you know, I think creates the raw materials, right, for that next um, economic um, revitalization or, or diversification. So I think it begins with public education. It's about the university. When you look at every single case study of a community transforming their economy to, um, to be different, it, it's driven by a world-class university. And you know there are so many programs, I think, that the university does a, a terrific job with. Uh, you know, I still love the creative media program and um, and virtual reality and augmented reality and, and what they're doing at the University of West Oahu and, and UH Manoa as well as UH Hilo. We've got one of the uh, best cancer centers in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the best opportunity, I think, because of our um, ethnic diversity in our in our population, uh, for being on the cutting edge of cancer research mm -hmm. and uh, and being able to bring to our community uh, the leading cures uh, in clinical trials and other opportunities uh, that really does create an, a number of jobs in both um, uh, medical research as well as uh, healthcare, which I think terrifically complements what we're trying to do to create a different in, uh, environment and economy. Well, speaking of uh public education, uh, we have a question from a teacher. Uh, they say, since my union, the HSTA, has decided to endorse you for governor, uh, what will you do to improve the quality of education in Hawaii and teacher funding and pay? So we're doing a couple things, as you know. I did, um, because the union challenged me to do a four-year contract, I did uh, commit to a four-year contract 
um, that I think provides the basis of um, fair uh, pay raises. You know, I think that we have um, more to do, but I think it's a good uh, starting point. I think most importantly, and what uh, doesn't get talked a lot about uh, in the newspaper, in the media, is that having a four-year contract uh, is just the baseline because I've also agreed and committed to working with the union uh, on challenges that they've had in improving uh, student learning uh, in our public school systems. You know, they would always bring up and, you know, the teachers had many, many proposals uh, in, on the negotiating table in, in ways that they felt would improve education and unfortunately in the negotiation process many of those just get cast aside and I committed to work with them on on those issues uh, while we have a baseline contract uh, to really make progress and you know a couple of those things teacher retention you know that's not really applicable to the negotiations but mm. clearly we got to do a better issue. job Huge we got to do a better job of of keeping the teachers who uh, professionals who choose to be teachers you know we talked a lot about uh, special needs teachers you know and uh, the mountain of paperwork and yeah. that they're burdened with and so there are a couple of those types of issues that are very important to uh, to I believe teacher retention in the long run that we're committed to to continue to, to discuss outside of the specific negotiations and I definitely have looked at uh, I know that housing is a challenge uh, for for many teachers here and mm -hmm. we've had conversations about teacher housing you know and we used to have a pretty vibrant uh, and good teacher housing programs, especially for rural schools, uh, Molokai High and Lanai, where, uh, you know, they're not a whole lot of housing options mm -hmm. uh, for teachers who are there. You know, doing a better job, I think, with teacher housing and, and you know, merging affordable housing and, and teacher housing so that uh, we can uh, create a priority maybe, and especially for the hard to to fill schools um, who have a hard time attracting uh, teachers because they're generally in rural communities, you know, c combining teacher housing opportunities and others, I think, give us an opportunity uh, to present a package to um, to teachers or to professionals who choose to be teachers that um, allows us to do a better job of keeping them. Here's one. Uh this one's pretty serious. Uh, how did you grow such a wonderful mustache? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I haven't shaved my mustache uh, probably since high school. So is that so? And someone, yeah, someone uh, in the previous campaign said that I really should shave it because I couldn't be taken seriously if I didn't. And, I think you look way more serious um, with it. Well, you know, it's one of those things that I I couldn't bring myself to do it. So <laughs> it's your trademark, Sorry. Governor. What, what would yeah, uh, what I would what, what does Mrs. Ige think about the mustache? Well, she I don't talk to her about it. You know, it's not it's not an option. But um, you know, it does. Uh, you know, it actually did come come up in the previous campaign, and I just said, look, I think uh, I people wouldn't recognize me and we were having troubles with uh, name recognition so we didn't <laughs> that's fair. we that's didn't fair. have to we didn't have to create another challenge you know, hurdle he looks Brand like he gay but he doesn't have that stash branding <laughs> branding is so important yeah exactly all right here's another one um 
This is from a listener wants to know, how do we plan on getting Hawaii to 100% renewable energy well before the deadline? Well, we already uh, have really accelerated, you know, a Hawaiian electric company uh, had submitted their, their plan to the PUC that actually gets to 100% in 2040. So we've already cut five years off. As you know, uh, Elemental Accelerator had done a study uh, really looking, and the, and the study report was called Transcending Oil, uh, and their analysis said the sooner we get to 100%, the more we'll save over the long run. So, you know, I do think that when you look at uh, some of their uh, studies and numbers uh, talking about um, advancing uh, investment in renewables, it really does show that the sooner you do it, the better the payoff. Shout out, by the way, to Elemental Accelerator and the inimitable Don Lippert, uh, who authored the Hawaii Clean Energy Initiative. Absolutely, and and Don continues to be an advocate uh, for clean energy, and you know we uh, had conversations, and so uh, it's about looking at um, the timing and of the investment. As you know, the challenge with 100% renewable will be about firm power and storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are seeing um, bids coming back to the utilities today that has um, the cost of uh, solar plus battery storage, so it becomes firm Mm -hmm. um, at less than the avoided cost of oil. So we are beginning to see investments in renewable actually reducing uh, the consumer's bills across, uh, across the board. So I think that that's encouraging. Uh, the challenge, I think, on Oahu is because of the demand, um, what kind of storage system can we invest in? And the, and the question mark for battery storage, which I think can work on some of the other the neighbor islands because of the, you know, the demand and how much storage would be needed, it becomes a bigger challenge here on Oahu, uh, is what is that best mechanism for storage? What uh, technology or, you use, correct? I mean, because right. battery does not always equal a battery. Right. Yeah. Right. So they're right. So there's many other options, right? Uh, pumped hydro yep. uh, storage. And I know that, and I've been encouraged to travel to the ne- Netherlands because they have many uh, water-based uh, storage systems uh, all across um, Europe that really would be viable in, in Hawaii. And, and, you know, hydroelectric has been around for a very long time. So it's very stable kind of industry. And, and that would be a possibility. And, and obviously, uh, biofuels uh, to, to run uh, turbines and other kinds of generating uh, facilities uh, is an option, but is expensive today. So, you know, I think that part of the pace of um, investment and and moving that uh, 100% sooner rather than later, I think, is is something that we definitely want to encourage and and accelerate. And I think the challenge is really finding that storage system on Oahu uh, that makes economic sense, that has sufficient capacity, that allows us to move off of uh, oil. Uh, in in a much uh, sooner timeline than otherwise. And so, speaking about electricity and, and particularly the uh, the utility, 
one of the main contrasts between you and uh, Rep Panabusa is on energy and the environment. Uh, so she's getting money from NextEra, the company that your PUC stopped from taking over HECO in 2016. And you also oppose liquid natural gas while she supports it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, first about NextEra, I did go into that proceeding with an open mind and really trying to take a 360-degree view of the proposed merger uh, and try and make a decision about what would be in the best interest of the people of Hawaii. Uh, and clearly, in that proceeding, with uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of documents submitted and a, a whole number of studies, uh, it was very clear to me that, um, that the people of Hawaii wouldn't benefit um, significantly for a lot of different reasons, obviously, um, losing control of one of the, the biggest uh, corporations in our community uh, to um, East Coast Company really wouldn't, I think, uh, serve the public in the long run. Uh, and clearly, I think the, the evidence presented to the PUC um, was, was pretty clear that the merger didn't make sense. Uh, the LNG issue, when I looked at it, uh, I know that part of the challenge is the huge investment that would be required um, in the infrastructure to bring in LNG, and uh, and it's a fossil fuel. So I I believe that it would be a distraction that um, on many different fronts. You know, if you just think of all the the permitting that would be required um, to um, bring in and make all of the the facilities that would be necessary to transition to uh, LNG just to me would end up being stranded investments or, and which is what um, people would be concerned with, would really be a case for the utility to continue to use the fossil fuel uh, rather than get to um, clean renewable energy. And so, you know, I knew that as governor, I needed to exert leadership in that question uh, because it would be easy to get distracted. It would be easy for the PUC to open a docket and then have to go through um, hearings after hearings um, on all of that infrastructure that would be required that I think would just end up being a distraction to the real commitment long-term, which is clean renewable energy. You know, I don't, uh, I don't, I personally don't know too much about renewable energy, but I do remember hearing that the uh, Pune geothermal plant was in danger of being destroyed by lava. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the recovery going on in the Big Island and your most recent trip out there? Certainly, when I had, um, you know, I had traveled to the Big Island uh, the day after the eruption started and had an ap opportunity to meet with the mayor um, and talk to emergency management personnel. Uh, the biggest, I went to a community meeting uh, to talk and listen to the residents, and the biggest concern raised uh, at that meeting was about the danger that the geothermal plant would present. And so that was um, priority number one for the mayor and I to make sure that we could take action. So we quenched the wells and, and plugged them in anticipation of it being overrun by lava so that we wouldn't have an uncontrolled release of uh, sulfur, mm -hmm. sulfur dioxide, which would be very dangerous. And I'm glad that we did because eventually the lava did um, overrun a couple of the wells there. And 
um, because of our action, nothing happened, which was kind of the good news. Uh, but you know, the the eruption continues. Uh, the mayor, who has spent much of his adult life uh, in emergency management, says he has never seen an eruption like this. Yeah. You know, it has taken many more structures and homes than any of other previous uh, eruption on Hawaii Island. Uh, it definitely continues today, and when you speak to the scientists, they don't see uh, a, an end in sight. You know, they really see it going on. Um, the mayor had talked about um, that it being very similar to the 1928 mm. uh, lava flow, which went for 10 months. Mm. You know, and so we continue to be vigilant and monitor the eruption, uh, but, you know, there really is no end in sight at this point. We are definitely have um, a working group, but county, federal, and state um, people on it uh, that the mayor and I want to define a new future for the area, uh, really working with the residents and trying to see um, where we could locate this on state or private or county land. Uh, and really uh, create a vision of hope for the residents who lost their homes so that they could move or have the opportunity to move uh, into a community where they could recreate their future. We've also been working uh, to identify county, state, and private lands uh, to help the farmers and the businesses that have been impacted uh, so we are making state lands available, as you know, papaya, banana farmers. Uh, a lot of the orchid and floriculture uh, industry has really been lost in yeah. this lava flow. And we are working um, with the Department of Agriculture and the county officials, really identifying the best opportunities uh, to make lands available uh, to the farmers who lost uh, much of what they had uh, down in that area. So, you know, there is a lot of uh, work. You know, the challenge is that the eruption continues and, um, you know, we can't really take a lot of the long-term actions until we can get through uh, the eruption. Um, there are many homeowners in Leilani Estates, for example, that their homes haven't been destroyed. But clearly, uh, you know, they are still impacted by the eruption and it's not safe for them to return for the long term. Uh, and so we continue to work through those issues and, and try and create a plan for both uh, immediate as well as long term uh, housing for those residents. Uh, so this was, this was asked, well, we were asked to ask you, um, there are reports that uh, some National Guard members who are serving on the Big Island uh, after two months, have not received all of their paychecks, and this active duty will not be counting toward their retirement. Um, what are you going to do to to change that uh, and to make sure that they get their pay in full? Well, we are uh, examining exactly what happened, and we will make sure that they uh, receive their pay like uh, other state employees. Uh, the retirement issue is something that we are working with the Congress because it is something that is established in federal law that uh, when they are on active duty status, they don't get full, um, they don't get the full service credit that mm -hmm. they would if they were um, 
on a federal mission, you know, deployed mm. to As opposed Afghanistan. to a state mission. Right. Got it. Right. So, you know, we continue to advocate for that. We are very active uh, amongst the states in the uh, National Governors Association, especially in these National Guard issues, because all of us governors uh, do have uh, National Guards uh, persons uh, within our purview of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And clearly, you know, the equal treatment um, is what we're after for our guardsmen who really do an outstanding job uh, with serving the public. You know, they we we activated the guard hours after the start of the eruption because we knew that this one was different, uh, and they've uh, served tremendously well. And we are committed uh, to identifying and making sure that they're getting paid uh, on time, and that uh, you know we can't do anything. Um, retroactively about the service credit, but we continue to advocate at the federal level that they should be treated uh, fairly. So last listener question. Uh, if a bill moving the minimum wage up to a living wage for all workers comes to your desk, will you veto it or sign it? I would sign it. You know, I, I'm committed. I know that uh, we need to get higher wages uh, I do think that it's about trying to um, manage the uh, increases to the minimum wage in a way that uh, our small businesses can uh, respond to it, and that something doesn't, doesn't blow up your bottom yeah. line. Right, year absolutely. One. Yeah. you know, and I think that that's um, part of um, the balance that we need to find. But I, I do think that uh, everyone agrees that. Um, one job should be enough, you know, and um, we need to uh, have a better balance of the cost of living in Hawaii and what someone can earn. Uh, and clearly the minimum wage helps us to um, increase uh, the wages uh, so that as we reduce or increase the uh, the availability of housing, if we are successful in, in doing more affordable rentals, then I think that our, our residents would have a better shot uh, at finding balance and not um, having to live paycheck to paycheck. All right. So now we've got some rapid fire questions. Yeah. You can, tell, you can tell he's been talking to Local 5. He dropped the one job should be enough. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that's the, actually we interviewed uh, Paula Rodellas and Sarah Ramos, who are uh, one's the PR person for Local 5. The second is the uh, is a member of Local 5. That was our last episode that just came out last Wednesday. So Perfect if you're interested timing. in hearing more, <laughs> check out episode 26 of the Blue uh, White Podcast. All right, Ryan, hit him, with the, hit him with the rapid fire. All right, question one. BFF governor from another state. BFF governor from another state. You know, I've worked with, Several governors, uh, quite um, extensively. Governor Hickenlooper was actually one of the first governors I met. He's the it's governor of Colorado, Colorado yeah. you know, and uh, we've had a good working relationship. He actually was uh, chair of the National Governors Association when I first got elected, uh, and he's been a tremendous help. You know, the other governors that I spend a lot of time with, uh, Governor Inslee of Washington State, mm. you know, he uh, has a lot of uh, similar beliefs. You know, we're all part of the U.S. Climate Alliance, really, mm -hmm. um, because the Congress and the president has dropped the ball on climate change. You to know, say we're the committed. Least. <laughs> yes, we're committed as governors to step forward and ensure that the U.S. has a voice, and it'll be the voice of governors and states that really committed. Uh, Kate Brown in Oregon, uh, we do work a lot. Uh, she got elected 
uh, after me, but uh, she really uh, shares a lot of the programs that um, that we all believe in. And then Steve Bullock in Montana uh, became um, chair of the Western Governors Association and has been uh, very helpful in a lot of I've different ways. I've heard nice ways. things about him. About yeah, governor you know, Bullock. he's he's a Democratic governor in a in a very Republican. Red state. Yeah dominated state and he's been very successful in getting his budgets approved and uh, very important programs passed so you know it is about um, recognizing that as governor you're chief executive and it is about getting things done it's not about posturing and it's not about um, making a lot of noise it's really about finding solutions and and getting things implemented have you uh you work very closely with the governor of my home state, Kay Ivey, down in Alabama? <laughs> not, not much, <laughs> I have to say. All right, next question. Uh, what do you do for fun? I, you know, I don't have much time for fun. I do for, for uh, exercise. I get out and run, uh, jog a lot. I try and get out... Uh, three times a week and run, you know, four to five miles. So is it like a? Is it like the president? You have to run with your security detail, or that you go solo? Well, they've they've asked me to try and find a circuit so they can kind of monitor <laughs> while I run. So I do keep that. an eye on you. All yes. right. Uh, next one that w- that we've been asking everybody lately. Favorite TV show? I don't watch any TV at oh. all. Yes, I'm sorry. I don't. Ladies and gentlemen, that's your governor. He, yeah. This man is hard at work can, for you. Can you? <laughs> I was like. You might have a trouble relating to his millennial constituents. Should we take it out? No, I'm just kidding. No, I, well, what I guess what are the favorite top shows for millennials? <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's a. You slipping it back. This is our interview, Governor. It's a, <laughs> this is a, a go, it's a golden age of tele, prestige television. What have you been watching? What? Oh. I just uh, started watching uh, Barry, which is a show on HBO starring Bill Hader. Uh, and then last night I watched the first two episodes of Who is America, Sasha Baron Cohen's HBO show, in which he lampoons almost all of the seemingly representatives from my home region, Southern United States. Yeah. Uh, Game of Thrones is real popular right now. That's big with the kids. What are you watching? Uh, Nightly News. Nightly News. That's it. Oh my gosh. Only the facts. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. This is a okay. Bear with us here. This is, we're going to give you a hypothetical situation. You are shipwrecked on a desert island. Don't uh, ask why. Don't ask why. <laughs> it's just you. Uh, you can bring one book, one movie, and one album. What do you bring? One book, one movie, and one album. <laughs> okay. I'll start with these. The movie would be Star Wars. Okay. Oh, I still think classic. that that was the classic. classic. And it's uh, remarkable to think how long ago that movie was was made and how a fundamental change in the yeah. industry uh, occurred as part of that. Uh, the book I would bring, you know, my favorite book of all time, although it's a children's book, is A Wrinkle in Time. They That's made a, a great book. They, they made a movie out of it. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's the book that my um, teacher, Mrs. Coley, in the fourth grade, you know, got me to look at and, and got me hooked on science fiction. Uh, My teacher made me read it in the fourth grade too. Yeah, same reason. Right. Well, and you know, and I was, uh, you know, she was trying to get me to read more, like good teachers do. Yeah. uh, And she asked what I was interested in, and you know, I've always done well in math and science, and so she said, "Well, you should read this book." And I have to say that she did get me hooked, and um, you know, it's something that I I love uh, till today. 
and what was the third thing album album so i'll say my my very first album that i actually bought with money that i earned oh, working at the pineapple cannery uh, was uh, Carol King Tapestry solid so, album, Governor? Right. So you just earned a lot of points from my well, wife. She's a Carol King fanatic. I've, I've, uh, you know, bought all of her albums. Yeah. It was the first album that I actually spent my own money on. Have you seen the uh, musical? My mother, that's my mother-in-law, raves about the musical. I know I haven't. <laughs> although she also I, had a Christmas album that's very good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, my iPod is filled with lots of. Uh, classic um, musicians and I mean you know from that that's, the 70s that's, and that's your era 80s. Huh? yes absolutely you know um, James Taylor Carol King um, uh, Jim Croce man you're cool gosh you that's know, very cool it's that kind of yeah. stuff and bad bad Leroy course, Brown yes and <laughs> and of course the local um, artists you know CNK mm-hmm. um Naleo Pili Mahana and um, Olomana and you know when I was in high school that was the time you know it was a really the golden age of music I think in Hawaii where we had so many artists Kalapana oh yeah Kapika um, Kahiapo uh, yes yeah. I mean there you know there was just a lot of different people and there were a lot of venues for um for performing artists around town R.I.P. So. Mackie Fury legend yeah. yes yeah. absolutely This very special interview with Governor David Ige is brought to you by Royal Thai Garden. Royal Thai Garden in Eva Beach is family-owned and operated, serves the best Thai food on the island, and uses the freshest local ingredients. Mention the Blue Hawaii podcast and get 20% off your entire order. That's Royal Thai Garden in Eva Beach, Hawaii. All right, and here's our, this is the one that everybody's been waiting for. We ask every guest, where's your favorite restaurant? Well, our go-to restaurant in town, because it's changed since we live in town now, mm-hmm. uh, has become Kabuki Restaurant. Oh, you okay. Know? And it's yeah. convenient. It's close. Uh, you know, when it's just Don and I, we can get in relatively quickly. Is that the date uh, night spot? Uh, well, I wouldn't call it date night, <laughs> but it's, it is a convenient location because, you know, it's right around the corner from us, and we both love Japanese food, and they... You know, have terrific uh, options, and you know, and it's quick. You know, it doesn't yeah. take you hours and hours to have dinner. What do you get when you go there? Because I've never, I've never even heard of Kabuki, so I'm, I'm a hundred percent gonna try this place this week. Well, you know, they have uh, their uh, teishokus, which is, you know, and it's not that expensive. It's like a complete dinner for you can you you have options, so you can take two different choices of entrees. So you know, I usually get terry chicken and and shrimp tempura okay. or sashimi or uh, miso butterfish or uh, oysters and scallops. I mean, they have you know like fifteen entrees, and you if you pick two, it's uh, like eighteen bucks, and if you pick three, it's like twenty. There's that. There's 22. that math. That yeah. engineering math. <laughs> yes. So I, 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 I you know, I'm very a, hungry all of a sudden. No, it's and they <laughs> this do. This is a great endorsement for kabuki restaurant yes. kabuki if you want to throw me a free yeah. dinner <laughs> uh, now governor would you believe that this man sitting in front of you who has never heard of kabuki restaurant has a full-blooded japanese grandmother oh I, no i would not believe that. <laughs> well i do i do okay uh, <laughs> but she, I'm, my mom's adopted so that's why uh okay and then oh actually i, I want to know this but uh, you you mentioned recently moving to town what about uh Aea pearl city area Oh, 
you know, our go-to place in IM Pro City was a couple places, Gyotaku, because yep. Japanese food. There's a kabuki out there, but the <laughs> line, the line at kabuki in in Aiea is like always long. Oh yeah. You know, I go, I went a lot to Shiro's. Yeah. Um, because of Simon and um and. Uh, Bravo's and, oh, classic. and Anna Miller's restaurant. I love without it. hesitation. He just rattled off like five yeah. of them. Well, you know, I grew up there, so yeah. you know, I spent a lot of time out in uh, Pearl City and Aiea, and so that's that's the restaurants we ended up going to. All right, yeah. so uh, we we ask a variant of this of this question, and obviously this will be a little bit different because you're the governor, uh, and there's like certain heads of state and things that come by. But if you're going out for like a, a nice dinner, where would you recommend? A nice dinner? You gotta, yeah, like you gotta impress. Or you gotta impress. I mean, you don't want to, you know, it's not like we're not entertaining President Obama or something like that. But, you know, if a friend comes into town and you want to show him a good a good time here in Hawaii, where do you go? Well, I mean, I do uh, like Alan Wong's. I mean, okay. I still, yeah. you know, the food there, I think. It's hard, you know, you it's gotta phenomenal. plan ahead because you can't just decide and, and uh, you know, decide to drop in. That's how exclusive you know. that place is. Their governor, the governor cannot can't just drop in. in. Yeah. You no, know I it's can, good. Yes, yeah. I, can't, I can't just drop in there you know i do like uh hoku's at uh kahala oh yeah you know, i think um it's great and the buffet is uh terrific uh and my wife's favorite is hale kulani mm. you know, at orchids yeah at yeah. orchids yeah. you know and it's uh right on the ocean and um you know menu's terrific it's and, wonderful yeah. yes all right and if people want to get involved if they want to donate to your campaign if they want to help out how, how do they do that you know, certainly, you know, check out the website. Um, the campaign headquarters now, as you know, 1803 North King Street. We're yes, here. Uh, is yeah. busy, and we have lots of volunteers doing a lot of different things. You know, uh, as I said, the only poll that counts is the votes cast on election day, and we're really committed to a strong finish. Uh, reaching out to everyone who's been supportive and uh, committed to the campaign and asking them to touch five friends and, and get them all to um, vote the right way on August 11. And Governor, uh, would you mind giving us that website just so the listeners know? Sure, it's uh, org. Perfect. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Governor David Ige, your governor seeking uh, re-election this is the Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. Josh Michaels. Thank you all so much for listening. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. Bye.
is a losing hand More than I can stand Love is a losing hand Self-professed profound till the chips were down No, you're a gambling man Love is a losing Final frame Love 